I know that each year, uh, as Dawson said a week or so ago, <laughs> we, lo- we love making uh, New Year's resolutions and, uh, and then breaking them. Uh, but I, I hope that, uh, that you do take some time, if not to make a resolution, perhaps just to review. I think it's good to look back over our lives, see what's, you know, what was this past year like. Uh, for many of us, I know for, for me personally and for many pastors uh, in our presbytery, this last year was uh, like nothing we have ever experienced. It was extremely difficult and a lot of... Uh, a lot of troubles came out of it, both for people in the pews and also for the clergy and those who try to minister. Uh, so I do hope that we uh, can resolve together that we'll go forward this next year and, and try, to, try to do a little better loving those uh, around us. And uh, So just a couple things. If you haven't already started, I hope that you will start uh, a Bible reading plan. Now, there's so many that I haven't really said much about it, but if you don't read a little bit of your Bible every day, you're starving yourself to death. Uh, So uh, I can help you with that. Dawson can help you. Any of our elders can help you. There are some wonderful uh, methods and means to read a little bit every day. And uh, if you do this, and this is a good time to start, Start reading a little bit every day. The second thing we would ask you, and this is uh, from our heart, and that is to uh, uh, make, make a decision that you're going to come to church regularly and worship our Lord. Now, you can worship. We have folks joining us on YouTube, and you can do that from home, but it's not the same thing. We want you to come to church as often as you can and to uh, help us reach our city for our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so just with those couple things, I hope, I hope you'll do that. In your bulletin, there are some other announcements. I'm not going to take too much time uh, with that. But I would uh, point your attention to the scripture. It's on page 6 in your bulletin. Let's read this, and uh, we'll talk about this passage. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I went to uh, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. I started in 1997. Uh, For me, it was a second career. I had owned a business for 20 years before that. And uh, I went through a midlife crisis, and instead of buying a Corvette, I went to seminary. And uh, I've wondered many times if I made the right choice. (laughs) Uh, Seminary was a wonderful experience. and the chancellor of our school, not then, but now, is Ligon Duncan. Many of you know Dr. Duncan and have heard him speak. An uh, extraordinarily wise man and a great father of our faith. Um, Ligon said that one of the greatest tragedies of church history is that when Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, his followers didn't believe him. 
and the church has been striving uh, since those days at its earliest founding to find a balance with living in this world and being uh, our citizenship and our, our, our primary identity being from heaven above. It's a difficulty, a tension that we all live in. Every one of you lives there. I live there too. The tension between this world and that world that is to come. And in order to manage that uh, balance, uh, I've told you this many times, Richard Pratt used to tell us that the deck of life is always shifting. So balance is only momentary synchronicity. You would expect a professor to say something like that, right? You can't ever find balance. And I don't think that the gospel or the Bible is trying to get us to find balance between two opposite poles with life shifting. What we have to do is find our place, our primary identity, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You get centered there. That is not some balance you find in the middle. That's completely off the deck. That's somewhere else. That's having your anchor in heaven above, our anchor in our Savior. And if you put your anchor there, then as you make your way through this life, uh, both as a citizen of this world and of the United States of America and a citizen of heaven, you will be able to go through this with victory and life and love. And it can be, even in times of suffering, you can be strong. And Christianity can be a joy to you Instead of how it is with many people, it's just a burden. It's like, oh man, church is just a burden. and it's, it's just rules and it's just weighing me down. And if that's what Christianity has been for you, I beg you, come and talk to me or Dawson or any of our elders. That is not Christianity. The cross that we bear is by choice. And it's because someone else bore that cross for us and as us, that bearing that cross is no burden. It's a delight, a delight, a joy. Jesus said, my burden is light. Why? Because he's in the yoke with us. And so we want to start this year. Dawson and I talked a lot about this. We want to start the year reorienting ourselves over the next four or five weeks about what it means to live as an exile, a pilgrim here in this world, but also, equally, as a citizen of heaven, having our identity with the one above. And so this, this particular passage is really great. I'm going to share with you three things real quickly. The truth about our founders and our heroes. The truth about ourselves. And then finally, the truth about our glorious God and the power, listen, the power of the doctrine of election. I make fun sometimes about asking John Calvin into our hearts, but let me just say this up front. If you don't understand the doctrine of election and, and you don't get your head around it in some real fashion the way the Bible teaches the doctrine of election, you are always going to live in uncertainty. And you know I don't mention it much, but it's here in this passage. And whenever it's in a passage, 
we're going to take a look at it. And I can tell you right now that as we go through these, you're going to see the power that this doctrine holds for you if you embrace it and you embrace it the way it was meant to be embraced. And that's what I'm going to try to do. Let's talk about the truth about our founders and our heroes. The Apostle Peter, most talked about Apostle in the New Testament, and he was held up very often, even by Jesus himself. He said to Peter, you are the rock, and upon you I will build my church. And he said he used in Greek the singular, you, Peter. Now, we run from that as Protestants because we don't want to have anything to do with the Catholic uh, Church and their doctrine of Peter being the vicar of Christ and uh, the, the Pope and Pontiff and all of those things that are associated with that. But the reality is he told Peter, you, Peter, would be the rock upon which he build that ch- builds the church. And so if we're going to be uh, honest and fair with the Scriptures, we need to say Peter was an exceptional and a primary person in the building of the church. He was, in fact, the foundation. He and the other disciples, because he was a representative. Whenever Jesus addressed Peter, he was letting it spill over into the lives of everyone else that was there. And, uh, and so Peter was sort of his foil to reach out and to make statements to all of us. And we know from other scriptures that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, here you have Peter, an apostle of Jesus. He was the most visible. He was the easiest to identify with. Now, you may not believe this, but he had great faith, but he also was an utter failure. And at the very end of Jesus' life, when Peter had made his greatest declarations of loyalty and allegiance, I will die with you. Jesus said, no, you won't. You will deny me. And sure enough, he did the same thing Judas Iscariot did. He betrayed his Savior. The only difference is that he repented and turned back to the Lord, and the Lord sought him out, and Judas, unfortunately, did not. So right away you see that there's a tension between those we consider our heroes, our founders. Peter, an apostle. Peter the failure, the doubter, the one who never could get it right, who was always asking questions that we all want to ask, but we don't. But he asked them. He was outspoken. Peter, that guy, Peter, an apostle. You're always going to wrestle with that identity. How can I possibly be a follower of Jesus when I have all of these appetites and things going on and thoughts in my mind and actions that I do when nobody's looking? How can I possibly be a follower of Jesus? And what you need to know starting out this new year is the truth about Christianity. It is, in fact, that. You don't come to church or be in church because you're good. You come and, you know, that's why churches are so messy. It's because we are begging messy people to come. And then they get here and we expect them to be prim and proper and do everything the way that we would like to see them do it and to follow some strict set of whatever. And we're constantly being disappointed. And so let's start the new year saying, no, you know what, the church as has been said a million times, is, is, is a hospital for sick people. It's for messed up people. That's why I'm here. 
Now, I, I don't know why everybody comes to church, but I hope it's because you need the Savior. You need someone to save you, not give you good advice. Listen to what uh, Archbishop Robert Layton, this guy wrote a great commentary on Peter, which I couldn't find. I had to actually download it uh, as a PDF. And uh, I've used it many times when I've preached in Peter. And listen to what this guy says. By that which is spoken of him, he's talking about Peter, the Gospels, he is a very remarkable man among the apostles, both for his graces and his failings. He's eminent in zeal and courage and yet stumbling, often in his forwardness and once grossly failing. This is a hero of our faith. This is a founder. This is Peter, the rock upon whom the church is built. You're looking at someone who's just like you and I. Somebody that's exactly the same struggle, the same temperaments, the same appetites. And yet Jesus said, this is the man I will build my church on him. And millions and billions, innumerable, like him. So, we need to know the truth. If you're going to make it in 2022 and pray to God that it's better than 2021, I don't know anybody that even wants to look in the rearview mirror at 2021. I read on Twitter, oh, we're all glad. People are saying, well, glad it's in the rearview mirror. I'm afraid to look in the rearview mirror. I don't want to see 2021. Good riddance. But let's start the new year thinking, what is true about me? What does the Scripture say about what it is to live as an exile? You're going to be broken, messed up, make mistakes. At times you'll be heroic and courageous and do some really amazing things because of God's grace in you. But you're never ever to lose heart or lose sight of that man that is the center of our lives, Jesus. Let's talk about the truth about ourselves. How do you, how does Peter, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Peter, he says, I'm writing to you, I'm Peter, the apostle. Now I'm going to address my, my audience. Look how he addresses. To the elect exiles of the dispersion. These were people that were scattered. They were believers. Sorry, I'm having trouble with this thing this morning. People that were scattered all over Asia Minor who believed in Christ. And he's writing to them and he calls them elect exiles. He puts two things together that shouldn't really go together. Elect, meaning you're more blessed and more privileged and more loved than you could ever imagine. And exiles, you're living in exile. You're in the wilderness. You're in the, in the world where sin and darkness is going to be all around you and also in your heart. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, who's one of the great fathers of the Reformed faith, our particular little tiny group of Christians, said this, We are glorious. This is Dr. Francis Schaeffer. We are glorious because we were created by God for the noble purpose of being His image bearers. How many times have we told you all that? Yet, 
we are ruins because sin has marred the divine image. You see, it didn't go away. It wasn't destroyed. The image of God was not obliterated when our parents sinned and when we sinned. But it is marred, and that's what he's saying. Yet we are ruins because sin has marred the divine image. We were designed to display. At times, it seems unrecognizable. Now, I don't know. I, you know, there have been some times, and I'm not going to tell you the specifics because you'll hold it against me. But there have been a lot of times when I have looked at myself in the mirror and I've said, oh, what? I don't even know you. I'm talking to myself. I don't even know you. Are you out of your mind? Why would you do that? Why would you think that? Why would you say that? And if you're a human being, you probably do the same thing. I have the unfortunate privilege of being able to stand up here and tell you that I'm a, a glorious ruin. Dr. Dan Allender, who was a visiting professor at RTS, uh, said this, to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, we must enter the complexity of both dignity, listen, dignity and depravity. We are made in the image of God, glorious, we have taken on Adam and Eve's hiding and blaming, therefore, their ruin. We are glorious ruins. And of course, Martin Luther, many of you know this, famously said, Simul justus et peccator. At the same time, I am a sinner, but I am justified. I am righteous. Same time. And look, folks, as we've told you year after year, it's never, when you're talking about the gospel and the Bible, you're not usually talking about 50-50, some mixture. You're talking about 100% broken and sinful and 100% renewed, reborn, and justified. And it's living in that tension as an exile and yet an elect person that is uh, so difficult. It's not a dual nature. The difference is the old nature for us is dead. If you're a believer in Christ, the day that you submitted your life to Him, He put to death the old man, the old woman, the old person with all its sins and all its junk. And you were born again, born from above, born anew. And so you have a new nature, not two natures that are conflicting together. Why do they conflict if one's dead? Because we still live in the presence of sin. You know, there's some things that you've got to know if you're going to understand your Bible or even even make any sense about the narrative in Scripture from Genesis on. One is, what I've told you, the meta-narrative that covers all of Scripture, creation, chaos, and recreation. Chaos is sin. Recreation is the redemption that God effected starting with Adam and Eve and the skins of the animals and covering their nakedness to the cross of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The redemption that we find that precedes this new creation that I'm talking about. Another thing you've got to understand is there's a, there's a pattern in Scripture of already 
Not yet. Things seem to be happening already. Okay, we're ready to go, but not yet. The kingdom doesn't come. Another little thing that I've given you over the years, ICC, inauguration, continuation, and consummation. And you see these patterns repeated. And if you pick up your Bible, I can take you through from Genesis to the end of the Bible and show you every one of those. They are the, they're the, the, the bones, if you will, the skeleton in your Scripture. And we want to look at our fingernails and start picking at a scab down here in little tiny things and we don't see the big picture. And folks, for you to make it as a Christian in this world, and it's, all, it's a messed up world, with messed up people. Those are things you've got to build down into the foundation. And one of those is the doctrine of election. So, um, here we go. If you've never wondered about this, then you probably um, have never read your Bible. Because it's all over the place in your Bible. The doctrine of election. What is the doctrine of election? Well, it is that God before... Uh, all eternity chose some people to be saved. He didn't unchoose others. He just chose who he was going to save. And he did that all on his own. He didn't ask anybody's permission. And he started uh, with Adam and Eve. He created them and he put them in the garden. He predestined or decided they were going to be the ones that would carry humanity forward and we would all follow them under their under their leadership. And he did it just because he wanted to. There was no reason. In other words, he didn't look down some tunnel and see what would happen and then arrange his uh, actions in light of what would happen in the future. Just not that way. The question always comes up, well then why... Uh, wh- why, h- how can he hold me responsible if he decides? We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Why is it important? Here's two reasons. This, I can't tell you everything about the doctrine of election today, but I want to give you enough so it's something to think about. Because your faith, everyone in this room, whether you believe in the doctrine of election or not, every one of you is basing your faith. You're building your life on something. Yes? Say yes. Yes, you are building your life on something. And I'm telling you, if it's anything other than God's sovereign choice of you and the power, the redeeming, re, uh, resurrecting power of His Holy Spirit, if it's anything else, then you have to ask yourself, What is that something else? What is it that I'm basing my faith on? Here's how Moses explained it. He was telling a population of people, a whole population of people, you are a holy people who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be His own special treasure. The Lord, now listen, The Lord did not set His heart on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other nations. You were the smallest. Rather, now listen, here it is. Rather, it was simply 
that the Lord loves you and was keeping his promise to your ancestors. That's why the Lord rescued you with a strong hand from slavery and from oppressive hand of Pharaoh. At once, in one little sentence, maybe two, he tells us the very thing that we need to know about ourselves that will do two things. One is, it will be the, the, the groundwork, the foundation, when you fail. When, the, when, when you're looking in the mirror and you're going, my God, who is this? The doctrine of election will be the thing that will hold you up when everything else has washed away when you have failed so utterly, when you're out in the the olive grove beating your chest and saying, how could I have denied my Lord? How could I have done that? Like Peter, what held him there? It wasn't anything in Peter that held him there. It had to be something outside of Peter. Someone else had to be holding him, securing him in place, and then at the right time coming back to him and saying, Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Yes, of course, Lord. Feed my lambs. Not, look at what a failure. You, look at how badly you betrayed. Look at, the, look at this. As Gary said, not where, not, not I see you, but where are you? That's the doctrine of election. Charles Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen Him. And He must have chosen me before I was born or else He never would have chosen me afterwards. And He must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find a reason in myself why He should have looked upon me with special love. At once... The doctrine of election will hold you in times of weakness and distress when you fail and at the same moment will crush your pride and your self-righteousness and your thinking that I deserve to be saved. I deserve to be in this room today. I deserve everything. I've worked hard. I deserve it. It, it undermines completely the idea of merit And says you stand simply by faith alone. Through God's grace alone. Not your merit or your works unless you might be tempted to boast or be prideful and say, I've saved myself. Somehow I've saved myself. No, the doctrine of election makes you incredibly bold I'm His holy priesthood. I'm His holy nation. I'm beloved. And yet at the same time, 100%, utterly humble and tender and soft towards others. Now I know there's issues about uh, why, you know, fairness, the whole idea of fairness and all that. And there, there's some good answers to that which I don't have time, but I'll be happy to, to talk to you about it after the service. The doctrine of election is not not easy. In fact, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section, uh, paragraph 8, 
tells us that we are to be very careful how we use uh, the doctrine of election because it is so difficult to understand and to get your head around. So uh, if you, if you want to read that sometime, it's an amazing paragraph. But you're basing your faith on something. All of us are. So when everything has been stripped away for you or me, what is left? Is it the knot at the end of the rope that you're hanging on to? Or are they the cords of love that God has wrapped around you and bound you to Himself? His Word or your promise? His promise or your promise? His Son or your works and your effort? And don't fool yourself and think it's both. It can't be both. Because if it's 99% you, or 99% Him, and 1% you, it's still you. There's no way around it. So, having not heard too many amens, I will move on to... <laughs> Let's talk about the truth about our God. This is where Peter unapologetically says, this is why the doctrine of... Uh, Election is important for you to know who you are, to make it through the exile as an elect person, as a priest of God, a priestess, uh, whatever, however gender you want to call it. You are chosen and beloved and you are there and God and you have an identity that is His because of Him, not because of us. Listen how Peter puts it. I I love this. Verse 2, according to... And then he follows a dis- with a distinctly Trinitarian blessing. When people say, well, the Trinity is not in the Bible, of course it is. It's right here and in dozens of other places. Look at how he phrases it. The foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge in Greek and Hebrew, the word does not mean to know something from the future. It actually is that, but it has more weight. It has more uh, import than just that. It's not just simply knowing, it's knowing, for knowing is for loving. So God's knowledge has creative power in it. It's not that He could possibly... Think about this, folks. I know it stretches the mind on January 2nd after everybody's had a hangover yesterday, right? Especially Presbyterians. We all have the... No? I'm getting nowhere this morning. I need to end this sermon fast. I know it's a lot to think about, but think about this. God can't know something that's not going to happen. He can. He does know every contingency. But when He knows it the way this Bible describes it, that knowledge has creative power. It's what we call effectual or effective calling. That when He calls you, it's going to happen. It's not that it could not ever happen. It's going to happen. And so when He calls us, He is not saying, uh, here, uh, uh, like R.C. Sproul said, you don't go to a well and, and say, here, water, water, you know, and try to get the water to jump out of the well. You put a bucket down and you draw it out. Well, that's exactly what the Scriptures mean when it talks about He... Only those he draws to himself come to him. So you're not, you're not exposed to Christianity by mistake. 
every moment from the time God conceived of you in his mind, he has been drawing you to him, and he will see that it takes place. Not by overthrowing your will, but by giving you a new will. So look at what he says. Foreknowledge of God the Father. To be foreknown is to be foreloved. He sets his love upon you. Nothing can break that love. By sanctification in the Spirit, what this word, sanctification is one of those big words in the Bible. What it means is that he sets us apart. Sanctify means to set us apart he creates a distinction between you and the world. And it doesn't, that distinction is not whether or not you smoke, whether or not you watch TV, whether or not you eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or just jelly sandwiches or don't eat jelly at all. It's none of those things. Nothing like that. It's who you are, not what you do. You are set apart to be his priesthood, his holy nation, his beloved people. And, and how does that take place? Across your entire lifetime. This is why I love it when we bring our babies and we baptize. And what we're saying is it starts now. God's marking this baby. And we don't know how it's going to play out. We can possibly know because we don't have the kind of knowledge he has. But it will play out and he will bring this child somewhere, sometime to himself. And if he doesn't, there's nothing we could have done to change it. You see that. So, well, gosh, you, you, don't we have to talk them into it? Good luck with that. Try talking somebody into it. The Holy Spirit's got to be at work. Otherwise, you, could, you will exhaust yourself with good arguments. And you'll never talk in it. Nobody talked me into becoming a Christian. I fought it all the way. And then after I became a Christian, I kept fighting it. I was fighting it this morning. Marty V says, you've got to get up and go to church. I said, why should I go? Nobody likes me. <laughs> Thanks, God. I like you too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. See there? Two people. <laughs> thank you. You know I'm kidding. All right, listen. Sanctification. He sets you apart. Why doesn't he set everybody apart? I don't know. I don't know. I don't like not knowing, but I don't know. And therefore, I'm going to be zealous in calling people to Jesus Christ. Evangelism as an exile, you see? I don't know who they are, but I know that i got to get out there and tell people about Him because they need to come to Jesus. And I can do that with assurance, as J.I. Packer taught us. The reason I can do it with assurance is because I know that He's at work. I can't sit back and say, oh, well, he chooses whoever he wants, so what do I need to do? I'm not involved. Really? Of course you're involved. Work out your own salvation, the Apostle Paul said this, with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and work of his good pleasure. There you have this tension again. You're working, but God is also working. And again, it's not 50-50. It's 100% God working, 100% you working. Okay? Everybody okay with that? Anybody's head ready to burst? I would expect it to. My head bursts every day. Look at the next one. Obedience to Jesus the Son. This means 
that, that your life is to be completely and utterly consecrated to your Savior. Complete dependence, allegiance, loyalty, love, to your Savior. This is confessional obedience. This is where the doctrines of our church are important. We believe that Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is King. He is risen from the dead. His, his uh, death on the cross made atonement for us. It took our sins away, but it also brought God's blessings and imputation of righteousness to us. Do you see? It's important that we have confessional fidelity. You can't just think, well, you know, God is whatever I want Him to be. Because if you do that, then He's just you. But no, we have a Savior that is a real person who did real things in real time. Thanks be to God. Then there's behavioral obedience and fidelity. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. One of the things that it just... Our culture is like on a runaway train today. You all know it. You see it every day in the news where we are defining our own reality. And it's no longer like it was five or ten years ago where truth is relative. Let me tell you, folks, nobody will tell you today that truth is relative. Truth is absolute. It is absolutely certain. And if you don't believe what we believe, we will cancel you. We'll cancel you. And so now, in just a few years, Satan has rolled out a whole slew of things that it's not up to you whether or not you believe them. You better believe them or you'll lose your job, you'll lose your place, you'll lose your church, you'll lose your life in some places. Because truth has not become relative, it has become absolute. And it's not the Christians that are holding up absolute truth anymore. It's the other people. They have absolute truth. And you better get in line. Yes? Okay. And the sprinkling of blood. This is atonement. We already talked about it. So, in the new year, what we're asking is that you would fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, that you would base your faith, the ground upon which you stand, on the rock of His electing love, not how well you're doing, not your merit. It just won't cut it. And you, say, you may say, I believe, in, I believe in the doctrine of election. I believe in God saving me. I know. We believe it in our head, but when push comes to shove and things get rough in our life and we mess up and you scratch us, we bleed merit and good works. Push us against the law and uh, the wall and we will always cry out, God, this is why this isn't fair. We, we don't see that merit will get you nowhere. Grace will get you all the way. All the way. Your faith is built on something. Listen, I'll give you this last thing and leave you with this. I, I love uh, every opportunity I can to quote Horatius Bonar, one of the great Presbyterian ministers of our faith from a couple of centuries ago. This is from The Everlasting Righteousness. Listen to what he says. Faith does not come to Calvary to do anything. It comes to see the glorious spectacle of all things done. 
And to accept this completion without a misgiving as to its efficacy or its effectiveness. It listens to the it is finished of the sin bearer and says, Amen. Amen. Will you trust Him this year? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, thanks, uh, thanks for being with us and for choosing us before the foundation of the world, setting your love on us. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, it doesn't make me choice. It just makes me chosen. And I am humbled by that. But I also know that if, if I'm yours, then I can't fall and I can't fail. You will be with me. And I pray that this reality of our, our nature of being with you and in you and that you will work through us will strengthen your people so that they do not fret and fear every wind of doctrine and bad news that comes along in this next year. But that we of all people have reasons to hope and to build our foundation on our future on our Savior and His words. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen.